Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Castlecomer, my hometown, is a pretty unusual place. Today, it's really picturesque. It's got a growing tourist industry. The old landlord's private woodland has been turned into the Castlecomer Discovery Park. But these are only recent developments. Until the later 20th century, it was one of Ireland's few mining towns. Generation after generation of families from Castlecomer and the surrounding region worked in dangerous conditions, which led to a volatile history in the region. I've covered some of this in a series I made back in 2015. It's in the show notes below. However, that series only brought the story up until 1921, leaving out what is arguably the most interesting chapter in Castlecomer's history. After dominating life in the town for 300 years, the Wandlistford family faced an unprecedented challenge as the miners organised and demanded a change in their living conditions. This movement was led by a man who was revered by many in Castlecomer, even when I was growing up in the 1980s and 90s. Nicholas Bourne, known as Nixie, was born in 1904. Too young to fight in the Irish War of Independence, he did fight alongside Dan Breen in the Irish Civil War. In the 1920s, Nixie was radicalised by the likes of Pather O'Donnell and gravitated towards communism. As you'll hear in this episode, this would take this man from rural Ireland to the Soviet Union in 1930, before he returned to face an onslaught from the combined might of the Catholic Church, the Irish Free State and the mine owners in Castlecomer. In this episode, I interview Nixie Bourne's daughter Anne about his life. Anne has recently published a book on her father, Challenging Power, Nixie Bourne, 1904-1971, which vividly retells the story of his remarkable life. She has amazing insights, not only from her own father, but also interviews she carried out with other miners who played an instrumental role in the history you're about to hear. Now, just before we start the interview, I need to introduce the show for new listeners. My name is Finn DeWire, 
and this is the Irish History Podcast. You can find me on socials at Irish History. We've restocked the shop over Christmas and fittingly for today's show we have the Starry Plough back in stock as well as the Common Amon badge and the Padre O'Donnell badge which were all sold out. You can find those at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Now finally I want to thank Anne for her time. You can get her book Challenging Power, Nixie Bourne, 1904 to 1971 at Geography Publications. I have an exact link to that in the show notes as well. Sound was by Jason Looney. To start our chat, though, I asked Anne, could you tell me about the conditions of mining in Castlecomber? Because that's really the foundation of the story we're about to hear. The conditions were unbelievable. And see, by the beginning of the, the 20th century, um, deep mining had been established. That, that was established during the, the 19th century, mid-19th century. Um, so miners had to work increasingly further down underground without adequate ventilation systems, without adequate um, uh, mechanisation, um, certainly with without health and safety regulations as we would know them today. Uh, so the conditions, I looked at some of the records of accidents and it was just amazing how frequent accidents were. They were part and parcel of the everyday life of a miner. You know, it would be arm broken in several places or leg broken by a uh, a f- rock fall, or fingers crushed, or you know, incredible amount of and constant. And almost every miner I spoke to spoke about times when they were off. Uh, I remember talking to um, Tom Rowe, and he said, "You know, when that strike was on, I, I had just started mine, and I was in hospital because I'd broken my leg in three places." <laughs> underground, you know. So it was a a constant part of their life and seemed to be accepted. This life began at the age of 14 for boys in the town. The boys in the area would leave school at age 14 and head into the mines. You know, well, and they were expected to do so. Along with the harsh conditions, employment in the mines was highly unstable. As Anne now explains, wages were indexed to the price of coal, meaning they fluctuated depending on wider economic conditions. Also, interestingly enough, their wages were linked to what they call a sliding scale that uh, depended on the market price of coal. So if the coal prices were high, then their wages might be increased by a certain amount, depending on how much the the price of coal had risen and their wages would decrease as well when the price of coal was lower. To make matters worse, the mine owners, the Wandersford family, didn't pay them for some of the coal they mined even though they were able to sell it. Then they weren't paid for certain categories of coal. Um, so a lot of coal that, that went through, they had meshes that they filtered the coal through. And a lot of coal that went through the meshes, the smaller uh, particles of coal, were sold on the market, but uh, they weren't paid for them. It wasn't included in their tonnage 
when their wages were, were calculated. Uh, so they had lots of issues. And um, at that stage, they didn't seem to have any power to exercise control over their conditions. They tended to be dictated to really by Wanisford at the time and later by Wanisford Management when it became a private company. While this is the backdrop to the story, now we turn to Nixie himself. He was born in 1904. He came to adulthood around 1921, just as the War of Independence was coming to an end. While the conflict itself had an impact on life in North Kilkenny, there was also bitter conflict between workers and employers in the mines. The kidnapping of two mine managers and then industrial sabotage resulted in the mine being closed for several months. The experiences of that, that particular year of 1921 to 22 um, meant that there was even more... Tr- turmoil, let's say, in mining um, during the War of Independence. There was a lot of strife in the mines. The mine had been closed for about six months of that year because there had been, um, the aerial roping had been cut, mining managers had been, had been um, captured and taken away by armed men and hidden for a couple of months. Uh, to to put pressure on Monisford to change um, conditions in the mines. The lack of work saw Nixie take employment where he could find it. The Irish Civil War began in the summer of 1922 and the Free State Army were desperate for recruits. Nixie signed up, however, it didn't sit well with his developing politics. During the War of Independence, he had been an active supporter of the IRA and now he found himself fighting some former allies. Nixie eventually would switch sides, starting a fascinating political journey. Many of the miners went into the Free State Army. My father went in with his brother, uh, signed up in Kilkenny, and he was sent to Tipperary um, shortly after that. Now, in Tipperary, he, of course, was fighting against people who had been former allies. Um, And... I think he found it very disturbing. It wasn't an easy decision which side to um, opt for in the Civil War because many of them went with their leadership within the IRA companies, for example, because they were very strong leaders and they had a, a very defined position in relation to the treaty. Sometimes they just went along with them. Um, but um, they had a lot in common the people they were fighting against, especially you had the early days, um, there was a lot of reluctance to to kill the opposition. So he was fighting against um, people who would have been natural allies in the past. He didn't like, I think, the position that uh, the government took in relation to the Republicans as they became known. And... Um, he, you know, in that if people defected, they could be shot, for example. They could be, could be condemned to death. If they were found with arms, they could be condemned to death. It was a very radical stance of the Free State Government to, to adopt those policies. And that led to many people moving across to the Republican side from the Free State Army. Uh, and uh, my father 
walked out of uh, his barracks uh, in Carrick uh, in December of 1922. And he joined Dan Breen's men. So he was then um, a guerrilla fighter, I guess, on on Dan Dan Breen's uh, side in the Civil War. After he was seriously wounded in the Civil War, he was taken to hospital. However, in the same ward where he was recuperating, there were several Free State soldiers. If recognised, Nixie would have been sentenced to death given he had switched sides in the conflict. To evade recognition, he took on an assumed identity, calling himself James Ryan. And he had a story, a backstory, in which uh, he had fallen off a hayrick and um, he'd cut himself on the side, and um, that explained the, the injury to his leg. And, of course, unfortunately for him, the Bishop of Limerick visited, and uh, he tried to pretend he was asleep, but the, the, the bishop insisted that he, want, he wanted to say hello to all of the men, sympathise with their injuries, etc. So he began asking him where he was from, and he was fine initially, but uh, then he wanted to know what bishop had confirmed him. <laughs> and he had no idea, of course, what bishop confirmed him. So he stuttered a bit and stumbled. And, and the matron that was accompanying the bishop said, you know, he, he hit his head when he fell, so he's a bit confused. And the bishop accepted that fine and, and uh, blessed him and went on his way. But of course, the, the three free state soldiers knew he wasn't a bit confused. So they let it be known that he would be picked up shortly. So then it was on to get him out of there and away as quickly as possible. Um, and Common Amon got on the job. The, the, the um, matron obviously was in Common Amon and knew his real story. <clears throat> so they got him to... He had to... Um, he went to the chapel at the time to go to the chapel. He had to get dressed in a toilet and he said how difficult it was to try and dress himself after being immobile for, for so long and to try and then walk naturally. He was told to, to sit behind somebody who would then get up and walk out and he was to follow that person, which he did. And, and she led him to a station and, and, and he got on the train to Limerick Junction. And I think it was there that Dan Breen and Ginny Lacey took him off the train and got him to a... They were very flamboyant in their arrests. And, their, and they, they uh, got him to a safe house. And uh, he, he recovered, then came back on to continue fighting. During the Civil War, Nixie fought alongside Dan Breen. Now, Breen, as you might know from the War of Independence series, is an almost legendary figure. Although Nixie was disturbed by his cavalier attitude to violence and grew to dislike the IRA commander. Even my memory, you know, of him speaking about Dan Breen was never very positive. He seemed to be one that they feared and admired in equal measure, if you know what I mean. And he he would, um, he does tell some stories that were very unflattering about um, Dan Breen, and one of them was shooting a Free State soldier in the middle of an act of contrition, 
Ali was kneeling on the ground and that disturbed him. There was another one that he said he was very lucky to escape with his life because um, there was a, <clears throat> a widow's son was been accused of having betrayed them and being the cause of an ambush. And um, he, the widow was pleading for the son's life. And, and my father put the case to Dan Breen that he didn't think that he was responsible for the, and uh, so he didn't kill him on the spot. He said um, they look into it further, but if, uh, if he was wrong, that he would <laughs> shoot my father instead. <clears throat> So he, he said God, God was on his side and they <laughs> discovered that it was somebody totally different that had betrayed. The civil war came to an end in the summer of 1923 with defeat for Nixie and the Republican forces. He would spend the following year on the run, only openly returning to Castle Comer in the mid-1920s. But life wasn't easy. Then he came back to mining and of course he discovered that uh, he had a difficulty getting a job. He got one in Skahana um, and, um, and that's where he first began to take strike action. You know, they, he encouraged people to go out because of some issue in the mines and, uh, and he was sacked because he was attempting to get them to organise, to defend, whatever it was. And all the men went out to support him. And they reinstated him. Now, that was one of the first concessions one would have given. So they seemed to have seen him very quickly as a leader. And he seemed to be quite tenacious and courageous in the line he took. And I think he probably was a good arguer of positions and he, uh, they had confidence in him. So that was, that, that was the beginning of his leadership role. This began a new chapter in his life, but the Irish Civil War had psychologically scarred Nixie Bourne. His experiences shaped his worldview for the rest of his life. While he would adopt an extremely militant approach in the mines in terms of organising the workers, he never advocated of violent tactics. He would have had very rough experiences, I think, in reality, that would have... uh, I would say traumatised him to some extent. I could never say, he never encouraged people to fight, you know, physically or to blow up or to do, you know, they, they went much more into um, strike action that involved arguments and putting the facts forward and, um, in, and being probably intransigent in sticking to their guns about what it is they wanted to change. You know, they were very, they became very organised. He had a particular approach, I think, to organisation that didn't involve the violence. And I often, and actually one of the miners pointed that out to me, and said, I think that had to do with his experiences during, during the Civil War and the impact of violence on people. His politics also changed during his time on the run. As Anne now explains, her father was increasingly exposed to left-wing ideas, those of James Connolly, through other Republicans such as Pather O'Donnell. And I think when he was on the run particularly, 
you know, they had their own network of people. He became involved with the left of the IRA in, in that period. And of course, Padre O'Donnell was one of the key people there. And um, I think he began to think about, because Padre was a socialist, communist, probably that sort of thinking. And, and he also had a picture of um, what he'd like for a free Ireland. Now, their ideas were built on Connolly. And he would have been, he would have been exposed to Connolly's thinking through the Irish Transport and General Workers Union that they had attempted to organise with. They would have been exposed to Connolly's notion of, you know, you don't just change the masters. It has to be more than that, otherwise you just change a green coat, a red coat for a green coat, and nothing fundamentally changes. The workers have to have a say in, in a free Ireland. So he had this idea of nationalism and socialism combined, you know, that would give equality to, within a new Ireland. So that, that resonated really with miners, you know, and it resonated really with him. And of course, Pada was in that line of thinking, but he also had the additional element of um, wanting kind of farmers and workers, small farmers and workers, to work together to a kind of, to form when his ideal scenario would be a, a farmers' workers' republic, you know, that would work under socialist ideas. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, the wider global context is crucial to understanding these developments. By 1925, communism was on the march around the world. In Moscow, the Bolsheviks had emerged victorious in the Russian Civil War, which inspired workers across the world. This was only strengthened when capitalism plunged into a deep crisis at the end of the decade and seemed on the verge of collapse to many. And capitalism was under strain. You know, you had huge unemployment in uh, across the world, and um, it looked like it, the capital system was creaking, was breaking. And of course, there was optimism on the Russian side that this was a good sign that there would, you know, there was going to be scope for a different kind of society in the future. That's what they they thought. It was on the point of collapse. It was in this wider context that the Castlecomer miners, who worked in appalling conditions, 
and were now led by Nixie, were drawn into the emerging Irish communist movement. In 1929, the miners would raise money to send Nixie to visit the Soviet Union and attend a meeting of left-wing trade unions. Then they began to think about organising again in terms of a union. And they obviously had connections with um, revolutionary workers' groups in, that were being set up in Dublin. And um, there was a, com- a major conference, uh, the, uh, what was it called? Red International of Labour Union Conference in, in uh, Moscow in uh, August of 1930. And they were inviting leaders from around the world to, to go to this conference, during which they, they would be able to discuss communist ideas and they would be able to see what was happening in Russia. And then the, the miners wanted to send him. And they raised enough money to send him to Russia. Um, and he, he applied for a passport, of course, that was, that was refused. And it was very interesting because I was able to, to access some of the the documentation, that the background documentation of this, and the discussion between the the Minister for Foreign Affairs and the Minister of Justice about whether they should give, issue him a passport. And anyway, they decided no, they wouldn't give him a passport. <laughs> so he ha- he was meant to go with the, a, a group of other people who were friends of the so- Soviet Russia, they were called. But because he couldn't get a passport, he couldn't go with them. So they went separately, and uh, he stowed away on a, a cement ship and uh, had a, quite an adventurous journey to Russia. It was the ship uh, got involved in a storm, and he was blown way off course, and he, he ended up um, where he shouldn't have ended up, and he had to travel across Russia to Moscow. And he attended the conference, and of course it was such an exciting thing for them, you know, meeting leaders from all over the world. And he met the mine leaders in, um, in the, Sc- the leader of the, the Scottish mine workers, the Welsh mine workers. You know, he, he got to know all of these people um, and could draw on their support, you know, over time. Then he visited the Lenin School, of course, when he was there, and Sean Murray, and um, uh, Jim Larkin Jr. were there, and that, of course he, he became friends with them, and they really helped out in the early days of, of organization, you know, when they came back to Ireland. They were being uh, formed, let's say, in, um, in sort of communist thinking, um, and they, they were meant to be the leaders, uh, the vanguard, as they called them, of leadership back in their own country that would set up revolutionary workers' groups and ultimately would set up a communist party in Ireland. That was was the general broad um, plan. Now, many of the people Nixie met at this conference were from some of the most powerful communist movements in the world. The German Communist Party, for example, were the third largest party in Germany, taking 13% of the vote in an election that year. Nixie, however, was returning to a very different context in rural Ireland. In North Kilkenny, he would find an extremely hostile reception waiting for him when he returned home from the Soviet Union. While the mine owners 
and the government were deeply conservative, it was the Catholic Church who would ultimately lead the charge against him and the other radical miners in the area. The priests knew that he had gone to Russia and uh, he came back with a bit of fanfare and was arrested and all the rest. But the miners were very... Let me say the word. They were ready for action, I guess. They seemed to be delighted that he had gone, and he immediately began to tell them about all the what he discovered, and uh, he was quite open about it, um, <laughs> and openness in those situations uh, leads to attack from all sides, doesn't it? So uh, the parish priest worked on the local area very effectively and also coordinated with the bishop and, and with some key people in Kilkenny, you know, that were very media savvy, like Father Coleman. Nixie faced an added problem of finding work. He wanted to organise the miners, but there was no way Richard Henry Wandesford, the mine owner, was going to hire him. Um, and of course he couldn't get a job in the mines because Wandsford didn't want him, that's for sure. But he was elected Czech Wayman, which is a, a position that the miners actually pay for. Uh, so they employed him. Uh, so he won, he won that position. He had to compete for it, but he did won, win that position, which gave him, a, of course, he was in a good position then to, to organise miners. And they started to set up the union and get advice, and they had a constitution from them, the Scottish Mine Workers Union that uh, Willie Allen had given Nixie in Russia. Um, so, you know, he, he, he talks about how radical they were, but he said they felt very strongly. They were very, you know, they, all these article ideas appealed to them because they felt that nothing else shifted conditions, or seemed able to shift conditions in the neighbourhood. Because when he came back, nothing had changed. You know, a new Ireland, nothing had changed. The, the Free State government was, was as repressive as, you know, the British had been. No change. You know, one of us still dominated the local area. Um, uh, it, it was an, an interesting situation. Here was this group of, well, they were regarded as ignorant miners um, challenging the power that be, you know, at every level. And, of course, the state came in and they, they harassed them by searching the houses and, you know, all of that, and keeping a very close eye on them. And... Um, uh, and the, of course, religion was so important in Ireland, you know, it was so important. They, they lived by um, the dictates of the church. And, of course, they had, um, the church took a very strong line through, I suppose, the popes had disgusted um, Leo XIII and also Pius XI. And you had Quadragesimo Anno that, that kind of came out with the key statement you couldn't be a communist and a Catholic at the same time. And of course, um, that the bishop used very effectively against them. Now, this issue of religion would prove very difficult for the miners. Indeed, many activists across the left in Ireland in the 1930s struggled to find a way to reconcile communist beliefs with their deeply held 
Catholic faith. In the Castle Coma region, some of the miners had to cycle to churches some distance away from their homes, and in some cases, they were also refused the sacraments, which was deeply troubling to them. They used cycle further afield to Mass on Sunday because they weren't welcome in their own own church. And, and um, uh, Carl, um, Paddy Carl was one of the key foundation members of the committee, the early first committee. Um, his son told me that, that uh, he went to confession to, to the parish priest and he refused to give him absolution because he was involved in this this movement, this, this union, you imagine, you know, which is very radical thing, isn't it? You know, sort of, uh, even from a church teaching perspective is a, quite a thing. Um, so, so they were hitting on, and of course this affected radically their families. Can you imagine the families, especially the more religious ones, who, who maybe didn't engage with, the social side of things, social teaching, or, or human rights side of things, um, which in a sense the, the pontiffs, the popes did. They, you know, they, a lot of them, they admitted that um, capitalism got it very wrong in many ways, but they felt that um, the church had the answers. And I guess capitalists voluntarily come in line and treat their workers better. Nevertheless, they remained determined, and with the support of the likes of Padre O'Donnell and James Larkin Jr., they did win some successes in the 1930s. However, this only led to a more intensified and bitter conflict with the Catholic Church, and the Bishop of Ossory himself would come to the area to denounce them. Well, when the pressure was piling on and um, the, the Union had their first strike and their first minor success with the help of people like Padre O'Donnell and Jim Larkin Jr. coming down to Castle Comer to, to speak in the square to support the miners, etc. They got, few con- they got a, a little concession of raising wages. Yeah? Um, and they began to talk big. I guess, you know, we're heading for success now. And, and uh, so I think the church are very keen to kill that off very quickly. And uh, so the, the bishop was invited out to Morning Row um, to address the community. And um, they, they put a, a guard of honour kind of outside the church to stop the miners going in. Um, and they were conveying, really, that these were dangerous men that shouldn't be allowed in, that there was a threat in some way to the bishop. Um, so the, the miners were, had organised a bit ahead of time, uh, and so uh, a couple of miners stood behind each of the people who were forming the Guard of Honour outside the church door. <laughs> And uh, one, of, one of them, Fitzgerald, I think his name was meant to have said, the first man to touch Bourne, I'll drop him. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody touched Bourne as he walked in uh, with some of the other miners' leaders. So they walked into the church and sat down as a member of that 
congregation, but of course the, the, the bishop was going to, to humiliate them one way or another. So he preached against communism, of course, to, um, to, to the church scores. And um, then he made them renew their baptismal vows. I renounce Satan, etc. And it was aimed directly at the miners to denounce what they, because they regarded communism as Satan, the instrument of Satan. So they had to renounce them in front of that the rest of the church goers, the whole community. So the miners stood up and walked out at that stage. So the feelings were very strong. And of course that intensified the feelings within the community because, you know, as one of the miners, the Walshers said, that poor man coming out, you know, no, it wasn't the Walshers, they were... Uh, they seemed very firm and committed, including their mother. Uh, one of the other miners said to him, that poor man coming out in the wet and cold, you know, because you're creating such trouble. And, and uh, of course, he, he came across with the, he should be t preaching religion and not politics. So they recognised there was a difference, you know, that in fact it was the, the, the bishop was being very political by killing, trying to kill off the movement to that point. Um, uh, it wasn't, well, they were saying it wasn't really about religion. While his views changed a lot in the coming decades, and this is something really well explained in Anne's book, she weaves in much larger debates into Nixie's personal story. We couldn't cover everything in the interview. So I did want to ask Anne, though, about some of the successes of the miners. While the 1930s were by and large a time of defeat, by the late 1940s things had changed in the mines. After decades of organising, the miners, led by Nixie, issued a series of demands and when they weren't met, they walked out on strike, beginning what would become one of the longest labour disputes in Irish history. Well, they first of all raised some of the issues and um, one is for it refused well, they refused to consider um, what they were proposing. You know, they had concrete proposals about how much examining um, how the price of coal had risen in line with the sliding scale that seemed to operate sometimes on, sometimes off, um, where their wages should be in general. And um, when it... Uh, it became a very long, drawn-out strike over the course of which there were many campaigns to, to get the miners to go back. Um, and some of these were aimed at... Uh, the, the, uh, for example, offering them special concessions at Christmas. Looked like raise wages if they would come in and then commit to continue afterwards. And, and the miners prevented, refused to, to allow anybody. I think one, they said one 14-year-old turned up. Um, so that was defeated. Uh, and then they offered, uh, they, they put a bus on that would go around all the areas and they called it the ghost bus to try and get people in. 
So they had various elements. The union came very supportive of the miners, even though it was such a prolonged strike. They supported them in every way. Uh, and uh, the employers, like what the company, had their employers' union. So there was negotiations going on at every stage. Um, and then they had the Labour Court came down to Moaning Row to try and uh, negotiate with the men. They were trying to get them to go back, and then they would give them concessions. And um, they were very firm that they wouldn't go back. There was no way they would go back until they got the concessions. And then they would get, offer concessions to one group of workers, but not to the others. And it looked reasonable, you know, they would go back and they would uh, go into the mines and they would look at conditions, they would look at all their issues once they were back. And they would say, no, you know, they would have the big meeting, the miners would vote. And this went on for 11 months. Um, and they must have been weary out, absolutely weary. And I mean, if I, I would say that mothers probably were weary, you know, having to have uh, the shopkeepers giving them tick, you know, we'll pay when we get money, etc. Which they did, they were very accommodating and supportive uh, of them. The miners would eventually win most of their demands, and by the 1950s, they worked in conditions that would have been unrecognisable to their fathers. They entered into the most probably prosperous period of their, the next, next decade, which was fantastically successful. Um, they felt they were vindicated, probably, for a whole, for decades of battling for their rights, that here was a package that they could, uh, everybody could be behind, and they felt they could have a decent standard of living, decent conditions in the mines, etc. So they felt very successfully, and, and they are very successful, and uh, I think proud of themselves for having the tenacity to last it. And um, that was probably one of the key features of my father, but he wouldn't have been able to do it without the support of the people around. They were really fantastic. I, mean, I would have to say I was so impressed by them. You know, the fact that any, any of those committee could stand up and put the clear, true picture of the background information that clarified um, what their claims were based on. Um, and when looked at officially, then it couldn't, it couldn't be denied, you know, in a sense. The facts and evidence were on their side. Um, so I think they were very, that's the pr their proudest achievement, probably. To end the interview, I asked Anne to summarise her father and his remarkable life. Mixie was, he's hard to sum up, isn't it? Because, you know, in one sense, he was a, he was a, I would say a flawed person in many ways. You know, he made many mistakes through life. But I think he was one person who learned from mistakes. And he didn't let go of what was important, what he felt really needed to change in life. 
And it was an interesting thing that before he died, he did say, you know, he, he was ready. He felt that he had done all he set out to do in life. Very few of us can say that. You know, and uh, I think he, fe he felt that. He had done as much as he could do for his life. And it was other people then would have to take up the mantle of the next battles, etc. You know. What we covered today in this interview only touches on Nixie Bourne's remarkable story. You can get Challenge to Power, Nixie Bourne, 1904 to 1971, from Geography Publications in the show notes below. Thanks for tuning in. That's where I'm going to leave it for this week's show. Until next time, Sloan. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.